and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. Well, when COVID struck in March 2020, regional news outlets were hit pretty hard. Last year saw a litany of closures of newspapers across the region. Some of them had been in operation for 100 years or more. After years of hearing about the crisis in the media business model impacting big media, now all eyes were turned to the local community-focused papers who were struggling before COVID, but for whom the pandemic was more or less a final blow. But though the papers themselves have been disappearing, there are two hopeful signs. Firstly, people still want and need local newspapers. And secondly, there are dozens of green shoots showing across the news deserts that COVID created. So how have these outlets fared? Joining us today via Zoom is Susanna Framark, the former editor of the Richmond River Express Examiner. She then became the editor of the Richmond River Independent and is now the editor of Indian DNR, a website which provides regional news covering the Kyogle and Richmond Valley regions in northern New South Wales. And also joining us is Matt Nichols. He's the editor and publisher of the Cape York Weekly, a weekly community publication covering Cape York and the Torres Strait Islands. Welcome to you both. So Matt, we're going to start with you, if I might. Tell us a little bit about the Cape York Weekly. It's free, I take it? Yes, it's a free paper, and as the name suggests, we're a weekly newspaper. Um, We're right at the top of Australia in Queensland. Um, We cover an area about two-thirds the size of Victoria, but our population is only about 15,000 people. We've got two big centres, Cooktown and Weeper, and um, one's a mining company and one's probably a tourism town, and we've probably got uh, a dozen Aboriginal communities scattered throughout the Cape, so quite diverse, and, um, yeah, we, we do our best to service all those communities. So you cover the entire peninsula? In the entire peninsula, from all the way down, uh, the most southern uh, place we go to is Woodrow all the way up to the tip of Cape York Peninsula, and in, we actually go into the Torres Strait as well. And what sort of stories do you cover in the main? Well, uh, the ambulance rolled over at the Cooktown races on the weekend. Um, uh, we cover everything. So we cover things from, you know, COVID vaccination rollouts to the pandemic to crime to, to community stories to events. You know, we have a lot of big events in the Cape. And, you know, this morning I was at Remembrance Day, you know, service in Cooktown. So we travel far and wide and we try and give people a sort of a broad, uh, you know, representation of what's going on in our local communities. And Matt, what led you to start the paper? Why did you want to do it? Well, I worked for the old Cape York paper back in the day and then it shut down March last year and I was living in Cairns at the time and I basically got the call to say, Matt, we've lost our paper, can you get one back? And I was contractually obligated to um, not work, uh, not compete for 12 months. I had to wait until September last year to to start up the paper, even though the old paper was not running. Um, So that was sort of the motivation, just really to give the community members a voice because... You know, I've noticed in the you know the 13 or 14 months we've been running that I've really been able to put a spotlight on issues in the community and also be a voice for both the councils and for the residents. I mean, how did you fund the startup? Because that, that's uh, on the smell of my oil, oily rag. So um, no, look, I, I obviously my savings and you know uh, my lovely partner was working, so she sort of you know helped foot the bill for a little bit. You know, I, I sort of had some good. 
I guess, handshake agreements with businesses that the first paper would come out. So the first paper came out on a Tuesday. Um, we would invoice that day and we made sure a lot of the businesses paid within those seven days. And that was basically how we kickstarted. And, you know, we just didn't extend ourselves too much. We didn't invest a lot in office space or things like that. So, you know, I was running off a laptop and, you know, I had a basic Canon camera and it just worked and it, it worked actually really well. And of course, you're, you're entirely online, correct? No, we print the paper as well. So on a Monday afternoon, the paper will go to Townsville electronically and they'll print it there and it'll go on the truck to Cairns in the middle of the night and then it gets flown to all the community. So there's only two places that get the paper via truck. The rest all get the paper via plane. And so is advertising revenue kind of sufficient to keep that process um, happening? At the moment, it is, yes. In the 13 or 14 months, it's been terrific. We've had great support. The one thing I learned from newspapers is quantity is really important. So my pricing um, range was really well measured to get as many advertisers in as possible. And then it becomes a bit of a flow-on effect. So people see the paper's doing well, people reading it, there's advertising, other businesses then pick up. And, you know, we've expanded. So I also think it's worth noting that we sort of started out on the western side of Cape York and then we've slowly grown the paper to cover the whole peninsula. Um, It's not that we didn't cover things in Cooktown and other parts of the Cape from the very start. It's just that we didn't focus our energy on that on day one. Um, But now I'm in Cooktown as as we speak right now and, um, you know, we we feel like we've got a good footprint across the whole region. And so just to be clear, Matt, you're running it entirely at this point in time on advertising revenue. Yeah, I've had no grants, no federal government support, no state government. There's been nothing except for advertising revenue. Have you sought any grants? I haven't even applied for a grant, to be honest. For some of the time, but also um, a member of the Queensland Country Press Association, they did a collective bargaining agreement with Google and I think Facebook as well. Yeah. Um, we missed out on Google this time around. Our, our individual paper did, but we're making some changes internally to, to make sure we qualify for next year. Well, we'll come to that, actually, because that is a discussion I want to have with both of you. Susanna, I might come to you at this point because you've had a bit more of a a difficult time of it, I suppose. You were the editor of the Richmond River Express Examiner. That had been in publication for some 150 years before it was closed down last June by News Corp, its owner. Firstly, had that paper been travelling okay before the closure? Um, it's hard for me to answer that because I didn't have, you know, um, it, when I worked for News Corp, I was the editor and didn't know the ins and outs of the business model. Mm-hmm. I think papers were struggling across the region for News Corp. And for me, part of that was because there was just this constant pull away from what I would consider, you know, super local news. And that also includes advertising. I think when people read a local newspaper, they also want to see local ads. I know it was a very loved paper and the community were so upset when they heard within two weeks that it was going to be closed without even an online presence. And what was its circulation at that point? Do you know? Uh, 15,000. Right. So that's not terribly unhealthy, correct, in terms of local newspapers? I don't think so. I mean, we cover a really wide geographic area. The population's about 33,000. It's Kyogle and Shire and Richmond Valley Shire. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a diverse community. And it's not as wealthy as neighbouring communities of Ballina, Byron and Lismore. They're where the money is. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons I've continued to want to do news in those shires is because then I don't think they're well represented at all until we have a fire or a flood. And when you say not well represented, you mean urban media outlets? 
or just in any outlets. You know, we have a great ABC in Lismore. They will cover some stories. It's just limited because there's not enough reporters on the ground out here. Right. And is the area, do you think, in your view at least, reasonably represented in mainstream media? No, not at all. (laughs) No, I don't think so at all. The only time we had a lot of attention here was when we had the 2019 fires when Ratville lost 18 houses. Mm. Uh, I know The Guardian is now doing a rural, they've got a rural focus. I think it's very hard for those bigger agencies to cover these smaller areas. And I just think like today, I've been at the Remembrance Day, which, you know, there'll be there'll be photos on the TV everywhere about Remembrance Day, but in Casino, where will those photos be? And then I had to go after that to do a, um, a story about a woman who's worked at the bra shop for 50 years, which doesn't sound like much, but it's a really big deal for that community because mothers have taken their daughters to get bras fitted. And she didn't want to do a story. And I said, people will want to see it. And I know I haven't put it online yet, but I know when I put it online, people will love it because it's about them. And, of course, that's a hyper-local story. Are there stories that you see in your region, broadly speaking, that you think do deserve wider coverage, do deserve to be taken notice of by by state and national media, but aren't? Um, Obviously, this is a big beef industry area, so there's a lot of stories around the beef industry. Um, I think one story I'm working on that I think needs national attention is state forests and the agreements they've done with farmers. I know many farmers who have planted hectares and hectares of spotted gum and other trees and have been left high and dry by state forests. So they are stories that I would have thought would be of interest nationally, not just to this area. Yeah. Okay, Susanna, let's just go back to then what happened. So after the Richmond River Express examiner is closed, you don't lay down and and say, oh, well, that's over. You start the Richmond River Independent. So tell us a little bit about that process. What were you thinking? What did you want to achieve there? I think at the time it was the emotion and the loss. I remember crying at my hairdressers because I just couldn't believe the paper was gone and people's response in the community. They were quite angry. And a group of people from Kyogle called me for a meeting and said, we want to start a paper. At that time, we really wanted it to be owned by the community so it could never be sold again. So I didn't necessarily want to own a paper. I just wanted to be the editor. So we had two weeks to get a paper going because we didn't want to miss the routine of the Wednesday for people of getting their paper every Wednesday morning. So we started up The Independent and it was a roller coaster and it was fantastic. I'm sure it was very exciting. So tell us a little bit about how it was funded. Well, we had a fundraiser, crowdfunder. We got about 11,000 from that. Our paper was weekly and free as well, like Matt's. Mm -hmm. And all of our money came from advertising. And we had a lot of support, like we had Days Machinery and Casino RSM. They, you know, they agreed to take out the front page and back page for a whole year. And, you know, the Casino RSM would, you know, if we were running short of money, they would pay us three or four months in advance. So we had a lot of support and a lot of that came off the fact that people had lost, you know, they'd lost their paper. So the community really rallied for over a year. We went for 14 months. For over a year, volunteers delivered the paper every Wednesday, which was a lot of work because we're a wide geographical area. We had a journalist, but we couldn't afford to have another journalist. A bit like Matt, we ran on the smell of an oily rag, had a donated office, and I did the editing and the uh, journalism. And I had a sub-editor, designer and two ad salespeople. So we were a very, very small team. Were you being paid? Was this, were these pa- yes, we were all paid industry rates. Um, I couldn't afford to do it for free. I needed to um, pay my rent. Yep. So now we were all paid, you know, as well as I've been paid in any other job. 
But since then, of course, that has been forced to shutter as well, correct? Yes, during the lockdowns up here, we had quite a few and our revenue fell by about 50% because people just weren't advertising. There was a lot of uncertainty. So I have taken that news online to indnr.com because I just didn't want there to be a vacuum of local news. How are people reacting to it going online? Is it, is it changed? Well, some people love it. And, of course, when you go online, like we're up to 20,000 users, you grow very quickly online because it's easy to share. So a lot of people love it and a lot of people really miss the paper. Like when I go into town, you know, they come up to me and say, I cried when I heard the paper was shutting and I was like, me too. It's a different audience. I would love to have both. I would love next year to see how things are travelling here and I would love to get a paper going again. I think they go hand in hand. But what's good about this time I've got in these few months, when I was doing the paper, I didn't have a lot of time or energy to make the website compelling. So now I have a lot of time to do a really fantastic online news presence. So I would like to see both. And when you say that the audience is different, is it younger? How is it different? Well, of course, the people, you know, a lot of people come up and said, you know, my mum's in a nursing home, she loved getting the paper. And so it generally is an older audience that want the newspaper, because when we had the paper, I'd meet younger people and they'd say, oh, no, I only read the news online. Mm -hmm. And I read the news online on my phone every morning over coffee. Mm -hmm. But there was something about, there's a certain magic, I suppose, of that Wednesday, and Matt would know this, when the paper comes out and everyone's reading it together, you know, they've got it tucked under their arm or you're walking down the main street and you look in a cafe and people are reading it and sharing it. There's, there's something about that you can't get online that they're doing that together. And you still, in my patch, you still get people, you know, like if you're out somewhere and you take a picture, the kid will turn to their parent and go, I'm going to be famous, I'm going to be in the paper. There's still that um, credibility out in the country so now that we're out of lockdown, a question to both of you, really. Are you expecting to see more new business open up that could contribute to your revenue base, Matt? Well, I should just add that Cape York hasn't had one case of COVID and hasn't been locked down at all, really. So we've been very lucky. And I really mean that we've been very, very lucky. Um, we know the virus is coming and we have to lift our vaccination rates in some communities. I don't think we're going to see a whole new opening of new businesses, but what we will see is we'll see business growth, um, particularly in the tourism sector with borders opening up, people wanting to get out and about, international travel still limited, and people wanting to explore their own backyard. So, you know, in the next 12 months, we'll see real growth in the business sector in Cape York, but we won't necessarily see a lot of new businesses. When I referred to us being out of lockdown, I mean, what we have been told repeatedly is that there is a great demographic shift underway at the moment, that people are leaving major towns and big cities and, and heading for quieter locales. Is that something that you're noticing, Matt, up there in the peninsula or is that not well, evident to you? Yeah, well, I'm in Cooktown at the moment and, and Cooktown real estate's definitely you know, had a big change in the last 12 or 18 months. There's certainly been a lot of southern buyers coming to the market. It's very hard to get a rental in Cape York. Weeper has got fully occupied. Cooktown has a very low vacancy rate for rentals. So, yeah, I just think that there's been a lot of southern buyers and, you know, and there's a lot of empty homes. So the southern buyers have bought them, but they're not necessarily renting them out because they want them for holiday houses or they want to eventually move here when borders open. So, yeah, there's going to be an interesting um, change in the next six or so months when things open up. And Susanna, are you noticing a similar change where you are and do you expect that that might give advertising revenue a boost if that demographic shift translates into the opening of new businesses? 
I think it will. I mean, it's still very quiet in the towns. In terms of housing, I do regular stories. I just put one up two days ago about a family living. They've been living in a motel for three months. Rentals have more than doubled, particularly Kyogle, when a house is listed within a day or two, it's sold. The pressure on here is incredible. I was living in Byronshire and had to leave there because my house was sold and rent rent was tripled over there. It's really gone high. But even the effect further west in Casino and Kyogle, there's so many people struggling. Like, And I'm quite interested in what that's going to mean because you've got people like me who were displaced from the coast who have come out to live out in the west. You've got people coming from the city. We're hearing a lot of real estate agents are saying people are buying sight unseen. And my worry is the people, like these people I interviewed this week, the landlord wanted to sell the house. They've had to go into a hotel while they look for somewhere else, which they can't find a reasonable rent. What will happen to all those people? There's going to be a a price we pay in society for all those people who have nowhere to live. They're either going to have to go further west or where are they going to go? So on one side, you will have more business opportunities. And I think we will see a lot of profitability, although we haven't had the same bounce back as we had in the 2020 lockdown after that one. But there's going to be a social outfall. And I just, I'm watching it slowly unfold. And it feels like at some point, it's going to reach a tipping point, and it's going to become dangerous. I know of women who are living in their cars, which, you know, in the country, we're all saying people shouldn't be living in their cars. Well, there's the caravan park at Casino and at Kyogre is full of people who can't find a rental and something's got to give in that situation. It's an interesting social dimension, isn't it, when you experience those kind of demographic changes. But I would imagine as well that with those changes, people are going to be wanting, they need to work, right? They Mm. need to start businesses, presumably. And if they start businesses, they need to advertise. And if they're going to advertise, they're going to advertise with a newspaper, online or otherwise. So surely that is an exciting prospect as a revenue stream for you? I am. Yes, it is. I just haven't seen it yet. It's been slow. Like when I when I go to our main centre, which is Casino, it's like it's slowly waking up. There isn't that sort of burst of activity that we had after the last big lockdown. So it's it's slow. I can imagine that will happen, and people are starting to speak differently about things. And there's Christmas coming, and of course for me, online advertising is much cheaper than print advertising. So I'm hoping that will be the case. I'm sort of trying to get a feel of that at the moment. And there's only sort of, there's only hints of it. I haven't seen huge evidence of that yet. Okay. So I just wanted to chat a little bit more about the coverage of your various communities. Matt, I want to kind of reverse the question for a minute with you. What do the people in your community think of the media coverage of the peninsula? Do they rate it? Do they see it? Or is it non-existent? Oh, no, they don't rate it at all. Up in Cape York, when the national or statewide media cover stories up here, they usually do a really bad job of it and they usually make mistakes and um, mistakes that wouldn't be made if they had local knowledge. And the Cairns Post is a good example. The Cairns Post, they will only cover news in Cape York or the Torres Strait, usually if it's negative or, or really sensationalist, a croc attack or a sudden death or a car accident or something. Um, but they're not covering the day-to-day sort of issues. But the problem is when they do cover those big events, they do make mistakes and, um, and you know, that can upset quite a lot of people and, unfortunately, that then puts pressure on, on me locally to not only get it right but then to, you know, deal with the reputation of journalists not caring or not, you know, being sensitive to those matters. So I feel like people in the Cape trust me and they know me and they, they really respect the job that I do. But, unfortunately, you know, our colleagues 
in bigger organisations tend to care less about the impact they have on covering those stories and, and what it means on the ground. And so is what you're getting back from people in the community that there's a bit of an us and them thing happening between... Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, I'll give you a good example of when uh, the Weeper Fishing Classic was on earlier this year or only a few months ago and they rang the owner of the um, the local tackle shop um, to get, you know, some insight onto the event because it's quite a big event. The tackle shop guy told me later that night, he's like, oh, I had the Cairns Post ring me and he said... I told them I only talk to Matt from the local paper. I don't talk to you guys because mm-hmm. you, you know, which is really nice to hear. But you know, I'm not against you know the Cairns Post covering our events, things like that. You know, anything that's positive for the regions overall better because they're not competing with us because they're not taking our advertising. They're not taking our readers. So I've got no issue with them trying to have a footprint in my area. I just hate it when they stuff it up because it's embarrassing, really. And it also puts more pressure on me because I have to tell the story a different way sometimes because often I'm correcting their mistakes because, you know, they're a daily and, you know, I'm a weekly. And the result, of course, is a mistrust between the community and the national media. Yeah, 100%. And look, to be fair, ABC Far North um, in Cairns, do a reasonable job again they're only they're not doing day-to-day stories on the ground they're just doing bits and pieces usually the highlights and in fairness to the abc they read my paper they follow a lot of stories up from that go in my paper they'll often ring me or text me and say oh matt have you got a number for this person Uh, i'd love to do a follow-up on that and i'm usually very cooperative often go on radio sometimes and, and do segments and bits and pieces to help them out i've got a good relationship with the abc because they know where they stand and they, they know that they, they come second to the local paper, but I feel like they try and do a good job in telling our local stories. Now, both of your outlets are, you know, they're independent. They're not owned by big regional syndications or syndicators like News Corp and, for example, Australian Community Media. Does that separation make much of a difference to the way you operate and also to the way the community sees you, Susanna? I think it's a massive difference and I hadn't realised how massive that was until it happened. Um, When the paper was community-owned, I really did feel inside like I was working for the community. And, you know, people think my job is writing stories. My job is all about relationships. A bit like Matt was saying, you have these relationships with people. They call you up. When you walk down the street, they go, how's our editor today? So they all know who you are. If you do get something wrong, they will tell you the next time they see you. So you're not anonymous you're very much a part of the community. It's been really interesting. I feel like my question that I always ask is, is this of interest to the readers? Do the readers need to know this? Why? So they are always at the forefront of any story I do. I don't have to consider any corporate ideals or not. It's all about them. I find that quite freeing because you know, it might sound glib, but it isn't a huge privilege to tell people's stories. You know, you go and see a farmer, they might be a bit shy about getting their photo taken, or they don't think they're interesting, and they are. They're in the paper, everyone says, I saw you in the paper, or I saw you online. You become a big part of their life for that moment. And I think it's a real privilege to then tell that story. So I think when I was with News Corp, of course, you had to subscribe to get the news, which I am not a believer in subscriptions. And people you're taking their story, you're rewriting it, repackaging it and presenting it back to their community. So that's that's a huge responsibility and one I don't take lightly. I just want to say really importantly, and I, I, I used to read the front page of, of the paper, um, Susanna's paper uh, down there in New South Wales, and what I like most about being a free and independent newspaper is 
we can put whatever we think is the best story on the front page mm. and we could be positive. A lot of the News Corp and even the regional community media front pages, they focus on crime and courts and anything will get people to pick it up and buy it. The advantage of being free and community focused is it doesn't matter what you put on the front page because we don't need to sell the paper. We don't need people to buy a subscription. I'm not anti-subscription. I believe that there is a place for paid journalism. Like that's not my issue. My issue is that the News Corp model of driving subscriptions based on bad news, tragedy, clickbait, I really don't feel like that's got long-term value. Yeah, I've got friends that work for News Corp and I always have this argument with them. It's easy to get a subscriber. It's harder to keep one. For some, they give away these trials, so $4 for the first month or whatever it is, it's nothing. So someone will see a story, they'll click on it, they'll pay the $4 or whatever. But do you keep that person? Are you still got that person in a year's time or they just buy it and then see no value for it? So, you know, the News Corp model is all about getting new subscriptions, whereas I'm all about keeping my readers and then obviously growing. If readers are happy, they'll just keep coming back to the paper week in, week out. If they're not happy, once you lose them, you might not ever get them back. But can I ask you both? I mean, is there not a downside to not being aligned with a bigger organisation? And that is that if you were aligned to, you know, a News Corp or an ACM, that you would have an easier time of getting your community recognised in the, the bigger state and nationally focused debates? I don't feel that because it's all about the story and there's a lot of, when you're in a big company, there's a lot of noise. So your story's got to still cut through that, whatever noise there is. Obviously, like things like, and I still do this online as well, like recipes, the humour column, the quiz, they're all done locally, whereas when you're with a big organisation, you have that syndicated copy, so you don't have to find that. But I really like those smaller parts of what I do, the fact that they are written by locals. I just, again, there's a certain... um, excitement about that for them yeah. I don't know I haven't thought of I haven't thought of any downsides maybe when there's legal issues you've got a big you've got a big um, legal team backing you like when if there was an issue when I worked for News Corp and I did a developer story and they threatened to sue you just pick up the phone to the legal team so yeah. that that sort of thing that sort of safety net there's most probably less safety nets when you're doing it on your own right and what about for you Matt any downsides uh, the, the only downside I could see is just the resources in terms of technology. But the way News Corp's going, you're better off being independently owned because if you say if you worked at the Cairns Post tomorrow and a computer broke, well, they'd probably find another old one or something like that. If, you know, <laughs> my, if my computer broke tomorrow, I'd go and buy a new one. And you, know, you might say, well, that might cost you money. But you know, can you really afford not to have a good computer when you're running a newspaper type thing? I don't see a lot of downside. The positives could be if you're in a bigger company, like the legal aspect, obviously. But I've been a journalist for 17 years, never been sued once, been threatened to be sued a thousand times. I'll sue you. That's the favourite thing people say when they don't like the story. I'll sue you. I'm like, well, mate, go, go for it, mate, if you want it. Like, I said, I've got no money anyway, so what are you going to get? I just think that people joke and say, oh, mate, you're the next Rupert Murdoch or, you know, whatever. And I just say the newspaper industry, in my opinion, it's very viable as an owner-operator model. But as soon as you need to pay shareholders or answer to a board or whatever, you're, you're in tricky, murky business. I think they're sustainable in a very small scale locally, but they're not cash cows anymore. And look, I would imagine like once, you know, 12 months in, I'm starting to pay myself properly. I could probably pay myself, I'm happy to put it on the record, maybe eighty to $85,000 a year. That's what the salary I'm going to pay myself. I'm paying myself. And I feel like that's 
probably unders for the amount of hours I do, but probably a fair wage for a newspaper editor in a big area like we're covering. I feel like there'd be no profit because any profit the paper makes goes back into the business. So that might be hiring photographers, paying freelancers, getting computers or cameras, graphic designers. I could make more money. I could probably pay myself $110,000, $120,000 a year and try and make more money that way. But I certainly wouldn't be doing the community a favour by skimping on, you know, what I feel like are important things like paying for photos. I mean, when we cover an area like the way we do, there's only one of me. So I need people to take photos and do paid for their work. So by the sounds of it then, of course, you, you would no doubt appreciate it if you were able then to negotiate with one of the platforms, with a Google or a Facebook, in the shadows of the news media bargaining code. Now, you mentioned earlier, Matt, that you just missed out on Yeah, we missed out on, we missed out on Google, but that was, oh, look, there's a few factors at play. So Queensland Country Press Association had to go into like a confidentiality agreement in the negotiations. So they couldn't really go back to individual publishers and say, well, Matt, if you meet these requirements, you'll get it or whatnot. So what they did is they did the best deal they possibly could for as many publishers as they could. Us being really print focused, and when I say print focused, we're print focused and we put the print paper online, but we don't necessarily have a great website presence in uploading stories daily. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Google saw the value in like those uploads per day and things like that. But that was okay. So we missed out. So yeah, that would have been a nice 30 to $35,000 a year if we're on the bottom tier. But that's okay. So the first thing I did was instead of sulking, I just went and went to a website developer, you know, one that developing a site for a successful newspaper, went to them and said, hey, I want a website that looks exactly like this, but customize it for our brand. You know, I'm going to pay them probably $10,000 in total once it's all run and done. I've got my hands on that website. I'm going to start putting stories on, on a daily basis because I don't see the $35,000 a year from Google as being oh, $35,000 for me. I'm seeing that I can spend $35,000 on a reporter you know, to increase the news offerings we have. So um, that's what I want to do. So that money, if we do get it next year, that will go directly back into journalism. So it would incentivize you, in other words, to, to, you know, to get out of the journalism. So, yeah, 100%. I believe that Google and Facebook do have an obligation to support local news in, in Australia. And, and that's not just, you know, when I say local, I mean, you know, it could be the Sydney Morning Herald as well. I think they've definitely been a competitor to our business and, and, and not necessarily a bad thing. I mean... I use Facebook every day. In fact, if I find more stories out on Facebook than I probably do from people ringing me up anymore because back in the day when I was a cadet, people would see a car accident in the street and ring the paper. Oh, Matt, you better come down here. There's been a car accident. Now they'll just get on Facebook and say, oh, there's been an accident on Charlotte Street. Do you also use social media, though, in terms of uh, getting your stories out to your readership? Is that a big thing for you? I would say it's probably... 20% 20% of our traffic comes from social media in terms of news like readers online. We have a huge subscription list. So I just email the paper out every Monday night and I've got over a thousand people on that list. So, and then they forward it on and, you know, word of mouth and whatnot. So Facebook's an important tool for journalism. I think we've got to work side by side. And But I think that Facebook and Google can certainly, you know, pay their fair share along the way. Mm. And Susanna, how much of your traffic comes via social media? Oh, well, I do Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, but this area, Facebook is most popular. I would say now with what we're doing online, 80 to 85% is coming from Facebook. Oh, that's a lot. Well, because we're a new site as well. So I post a story on Facebook, I post on everywhere. And because, you know, I get the Google analytics, I, oh, it's huge what comes from Facebook. 
You put a story up and it's a bit like the analytics is like my little new poker machine watching how many clicks I get on a story, how many people are using the site. So which also gives you an indication of what stories people are liking as well. Were you up and running when Facebook momentarily closed down news feeds? Yes, yes, that was What impact does that have on you? Well, I quickly just turned my personal Facebook. I went on there and said, we're over here. And I just hosted the news on my personal Facebook page until they reversed that decision. But it it was an interesting uh, sort of call to all of us because at any point that could happen with Facebook. And have you sought, Susanna, to to bargain with Facebook? I was obviously at a bit of a loss how to do that, but um, I've connected with a lawyer who said he's representing about 5% of the independent media in um, New South Wales. So I have connected with him. He's going to make a case for all of us because we're all too small to go and do it on our own. So I'm yet to hear what's going to come of that, but I hope something will, because I would put about five or six stories online every day on the website. Uh, Yeah, I have to see what happens with that one. Okay, well, look, we're almost out of time, but can I just ask you both to finally and briefly tell me, uh, if you can, what you've learned since starting your various ventures and what would you pass on to others who want to get into the same terrain? Susanna? Well, for me, I've had to learn to be good at lots of things. In years gone by, you just did the story, you never wrote the headline, you didn't take the picture. Now I write the headline, take the picture. I've learned to code with the website. With the newspaper, I had to learn about how to build a newspaper. So my skill set would have grown massively in the last two years because I've got to be good at a whole lot of things. I had to be good at managing staff. And my fallback position when I get really tired, what always lifts me is when I go out and do a story. That's like, oh, this is what I'm doing it for. But the amount of other work I've had to do has been absolutely huge. So I think I'm a lot more skilled than I was two years ago. Mm, Okay. And Matt, what about you? What have you learned? Uh, The thing I've learned most is that small business owners, they run this country. They are just, Mm. it's so, it's so hard, such hard work. I mean, just being a newspaper editor on its own is, is really difficult. Being an owner operator just probably doubles the workload. And I wouldn't say I've been under financial stress along the way. I mean, yes, there's been times where, you know, you've been keeping an eye on the books and you've got to pay bass and things like that. And and whatnot but i just think that you know the amount of work that goes into running a business you know is highly commendable and you know i've got a real appreciation for it now one thing i would say to people if anyone's listening here that you know their community doesn't have a newspaper or doesn't have a a media outlet is think about how you're going to go about it but if you want to do it do it if it don't expect to get rich out of doing it you might be able to make a living out of it hopefully you can um but ask for help i mean there's people out there that will be able to offer advice. I mean, I've spoken to other communities. I've been approached by I've been approached by Douglas Shire Council in Port Douglas um, to get their newspaper back up and running. You know, I've been approached by Robbie Catter, the state MP, about you know newspapers out in his area. There's a real appetite for you know news in those regional areas. But how you make it work and how you save money is is really key. And one thing I worked out about saving money is real estate is the biggest cost in a lot of businesses lose the office, work from home. You know, if you need to do a job, meet them at a cafe or a pub or, you know, in the park or at your house, you know, save on on the money in terms of real estate because the rent really does, you know, drive up the prices and you're paying for double internet expenses and you've got electricity expenses and air conditioning. So save as much money as you can. You can do a newspaper off a laptop. I mean, I've got a proper computer, obviously, and a laptop, but 
Yeah, I remember two years ago, I was in Sri Lanka of all places before COVID and, and I put out a newspaper from Sri Lanka. So it can be done. You just need to have a really good uh, work ethic and, and, you know, and be prepared to hit a few hurdles. But once you get over those hurdles, it's you know, really, really satisfying. Well, Matt, you make it sound almost tempting. Um, I think we'll leave it there. I thank you both very, very much for your time today and I wish you both the best of luck. Uh, It's a hard road that you're travelling, but it sounds immensely satisfying. So, uh, Susanna Framark and Matt Nichols, thank you very much for being on Fourth Estate. Thank you very much. And on that note, thank you to Susanna Framark and Matt Nichols for being on Fourth Estate. And thank you for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so that you can hear us talk about media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is fourthestate.au. Thanks to my producer, Toby Hemmings, and executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. I'm Monica Attard. Thank you for listening. <laughs>